Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may be listening. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and we are in episode 317 of our Bible Bites as we continue reading through the scriptures this year. My reading today is found in the book of Acts of the Apostles, chapters 1 through 3. And so we'll be beginning the book of Acts today, and I will try to fly through these as fast as I can. But let me tell you a little bit about Acts and its author. The author is Luke. This is his sequel to his gospel. He has wanted to write to Theophilus a full account of Jesus and of Christianity and how it all began, and so that Theophilus will have a firm foundation to, you know, just to settle any doubts that he has about Jesus, about who Jesus is. So Acts is kind of like the rest of the story, um, at least up until Luke's day. Now, Luke writes this, you know, way before the rest of the church history has occurred, even up till today. But during Luke's day, that he kind of gives the rest of the story. Um, there has been much more since Luke's time, and that's one of the reasons why Acts does not have an official conclusion to it, because it's still operational today. We are still the church. We are still living in what some do dub the church age, and, and it can be called that. Luke was a doctor who met Paul in Troas, cared for him, and began to be a faithful companion of Paul after that even up till the time of, of Paul's death. And you can read more about that in Acts 16, Colossians 4:14, 4, 2 Timothy 4:11, and Philemon 1, verse 24, excuse me. Notice from Acts 16 on, as we go through the book of Acts, we'll, we'll kind of make note of this, that the, the narrative changes a little bit. And in the first part of Acts, it's, it's they and them and, you know, he and him, etc. But from 16 afterward, it's we. And so Luke includes himself in that narrative once he has become joined with the disciples and joined with the Apostle Paul. It could actually be named the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the protagonist in this story. Luke is really directing us to the Holy Spirit. His gospel, as with all the other gospels, were to direct us to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. He was the promise of the Father. He was the promised helper and comforter that Jesus spoke about, the Spirit of Truth. And so Luke picks up with that right where he left off in his gospel, and he carries us through this coming of the Holy Spirit what that was like, what it meant for the early church, etc. We believe that Luke's gospel was written between the years of 60 and 64 AD. It was during Paul's house arrest in Rome, which is mentioned in chapter 28, and that occurred in about AD 60. But Luke does not mention Paul's death, which occurred in 64. Nor does he mention the persecution of Nero and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. None of that is mentioned by Luke. So we believe that he wrote his gospel prior to AD 64 when those events began to happen. So it was sometime in the early 60s that Luke writes this 
uh, epistle. It's a perfect follow-up to his gospel uh, because it's really the Holy Spirit's work once Jesus has gone. And it's also been prophesied by Jesus that the book of Acts chronicles for us the birth of the church, its infancy, growth, and development, its pattern and model for us to follow, its power and confidence in the Holy Spirit, and it gives us a backdrop and historical context for all of the remaining books of the New Testament, including it giving us the history of some of those authors, their positions and authority to write these books, and the chronological context that brings depth to them. For example, we understand more about the prison, the imprisonment of Paul when he writes his prison letters that we will look at later on. Chapter 1 picks directly up from Luke 24 when it ended. So it becomes the perfect sequel, and verses 1 through 3 actually connect Luke's gospel to the book of Acts. It's the connecting transition for this, and he tells us his purpose for this sequel is in the continuation of the story so that Theophilus has the full and thorough account of everything, not so that he doesn't think it all ended after Jesus died. No, he's got to show us that Jesus said, you know, now I'm, you go into the world, preach the gospel and all of that. When he ascended, talked about the promise of the Father coming to them, waiting in Jerusalem, etc. And so Luke is going to now show the continuation that Jesus didn't go off the scene, leave us all alone, and we, you know, we're nothing here and he's not with us or whatever. He shows us the continuation or what some might dub the rest of the story. Praise be to God. In chapter, in verses 4 through 5, I want to read these to you. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, and you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this introduces us to the protagonist or the main character of Luke's sequel, his epistle here. It is the Holy Spirit. He was the one promised by both Jesus and John the Baptist through Jesus. He said, you will be baptized, that the one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And that is from the words of John the Baptist. So both of those testify of it. And there were Old Testament authors. And this was also promised by the Father. So in verse 6, the disciples think, Okay, Lord, you know, you've died. You've rose from the dead. Is it now time? To, they're still talking to him before he ascends to the Father. And they're like, okay, now is it finally time to let's start this this messianic kingdom? Let's get this thing going. You know, 2,000 years ago, they wanted to go right into the millennial kingdom, to the messianic kingdom that the Old Testament prophesied about. And Jesus says in verse 7 and 8, And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. In other words, don't worry about when the timing of that kingdom is coming. This is what you're to focus on, and this is how you're going to live your life now, in the meantime, while you wait for that. And then he goes on and he tells them how. But you shall receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the disciples had a likely assumption. They knew that he was the Messiah, the promised king to sit on David's throne, so they're thinking it's time for the kingdom. Jesus, however, leaves the timing open. Notice that. He says, it's not for us to try to figure that out. But he assures us of what and how we are to be focused and live in the meantime. He talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon us. That Holy Spirit gives us, he says, power, dunamis, that might, that force, that ability to do what he wants us to do and to be powerful for him. He says we're to be his witnesses. This is the call to action, the mission. We're to testify of him. Many times it can result in martyrdom. And even if that's the case, we're to be his witnesses by God's grace. And we're to be his witnesses everywhere, beginning with our home and expanding from there to the uttermost ends of the earth. Jerusalem was their home at that time beginning with Jerusalem, and then out to Judea and Samaria, and then all the way to the world. And that has been the expansion of the church in accordance to Jesus' words. Then Luke gives us this account of the actual ascension here, which happened on the 40th day of the Omer count, which started at first fruits, And it was part of the Jewish counting of the Omer until Shavuot, or Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. Then, in verse, 20, in verse 12 through 26, it covers, this whole thing covers the rest of the chapter. Um, verse 11 says this. First, I want to mention this. Verse 11, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand up gazing up into heaven? These are the two men after Jesus has ascended. They say this, this same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That is still true today, and we are still awaiting King Jesus to return, and he will return. This is the promise that we all await. Now, the next 10 days are covered for us, beginning in verse 12, all the way through the rest of the chapter. And we see the 11 faithful disciples. Now, now they have been commissioned after the ascension. At the ascension, they became apostles because that's when they were sent out. And the word apostles means the sent ones. So Jesus appointed them. They were no longer disciples. Now they are apostles and he has made them to be apostles. So we have the 11 faithful apostles. We have the women with them, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, and I assume most likely that his sisters are included in the women that were there, including people like Mary of Magdala and so forth. And notice they continued all with one accord in prayer, complete unity in all of them, and their, their group grew to a total of 120 there. Now notice Peter rising up in this, this passage. Here he rises up. He explains what happened to Judas was fulfillment of prophecy, and now his office has got to be um, refilled. They need the 12 that Jesus originally set up. 
So they said, we got to choose one. And then it goes on. It talks about what happened to Judas, how he fulfills the prophetic words from David uh, in the Psalms. And then it goes on and he says, you know, we got to have somebody to fill his office. It's got to be somebody that went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when Jesus was taken up from us. And he says, that person that can meet those qualifications needs to be one of us. So they proposed two different men. Well, they didn't know which one to choose. So they prayed. Hallelujah. When we don't know what to do, let this be an example to us. We always pray. And they said to the Lord in verse 24, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship. Now, Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and also was called Joseph, his name, he was the one that was not chosen. Matthias was the one chosen. But that other man still served the Lord. He was still valuable to the kingdom of God. He just had not received this particular appointment by God. And we need to remember that, that we're all called to be a part of God's body. And he may choose this one in this particular ministry or field and may choose us in other ways. And there's no place for competition or jealousy or any of that. We accept the, cho the choosing of the Lord and then come in unity and serve together. And so that's what happened. The way we know that happened is because right then we go into chapter 2. And it says, when the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. All of them in complete unity, one heart, one passion, one purpose. And suddenly there came this sound from heaven, the rushing mighty wind sound, similar maybe to what a hurricane wind or a tornado whistling wind would sound like, something very powerful, very mighty. It comes into their house. It says that there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and sat on each one of them. This, is, this takes us back to the prophetic word from John the Baptist, that, it, we, that Jesus would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So there was a fire element. And don't let that scare you. Now, it says as a fire, so it wasn't real fire, but it was in a spiritual sense, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the fire of God, that holiness, that, that part of God that, that the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. So it's all in relation to that. It's, it's talking about God. Hallelujah. Excuse me, just one second. And then it goes on and it talks about they were dwelling. They began, they were all filled, verse 4, with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this speaking in tongues can cause controversy among some. Some denominations have more trouble with this and some denominations do not. And we have to accept all of the word of God. So I'm not trying to argue one versus the other. And it's certainly not something for us to disagree over in the body of Christ, for we serve the same risen Lord. However, there is legitimacy to the concept of speaking in tongues. It happened here in the book of Acts. And notice this, that they spoke in languages that were unknown to them, 
They were unlearned by them, but they were tongues that other people could understand at times. Now, sometimes speaking in tongues can be just a, a heavenly language or a prayer language, some, some like to call it, that we use and we pray. We pray in the spirit. We pray in those tongues. We use it as a time and a way of worshiping God. But there can be times where there are even prophetic type words that are given out in tongues. We'll talk more about that as we get into more of the scriptures and some of Paul's writings where he really goes into explaining that. But the, the thing I want to point out here is that it did, in fact, happen when the Holy Spirit of God was poured out into the church in Acts chapter 2. And because of that, it created a testimony to many people from different dialects. You have to remember there were people there from all over the known world in that day because this was Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks which was one of the three required pilgrimage feasts where every male was required to come to Jerusalem from wherever they lived. So that's why you have so many people, so many backgrounds, so many nationalities or ethnic groups or dialects that were there. And they're all hearing in their own tongue the glorious, wonderful works of God. But notice this also about this tongue, speaking in these tongues. It's always something that's led and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And it is according to his divine will, not something we conjure up or use like some magic thing. It's not that at all. It's an actual gift of the Holy Spirit. It's an actual empowering and uh, baptism from the Holy Spirit of God for his purposes. And it's used when he leads under his utterance in Jesus' name. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. Notice that they had the, the people had varying responses. Some of them, excuse me just a second. Okay. Some of them were mockers and they didn't believe in it. They were trying to um, mock and claim, well, these, they're just drunk with new wine. Well, I do believe there might have been some truth in that because the Old Testament had prophesied about a new wine that would be poured out, but it was not what they thought it was. It wasn't an alcoholic intoxication, but it was an intoxication, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit, the new wine that God would bring. So we see Peter rising up here, and I encourage you read the entire sermon that Peter gave on that day. It's powerful. So here now we see the guy that just maybe 40, 43, no, I'm sorry, about 52 days, 53 days prior to this had denied even knowing Jesus. But then a few days later, Jesus raises from the dead after uh, they've seen him a couple of times Maybe another week or so, he comes by the sea. We just read about it in John chapter 21. He restores Peter and he gives him his official destiny and calling. He is to be raised up to be a, a shepherd for the new church. He is to be raised up to be a, a leader for God. And so Peter is now emboldened by the Spirit of God and has no more cowardice. And he quotes 
the rhema word, knowing that this is its fulfillment. From Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. Hallelujah. And I want to just point out a few things about the rest of this chapter. First of all, in verse 21, quoting from Joel, he says this, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul picks this up. In Romans also, and testifies of it in Romans ten thirteen. So now you see Joel, Peter, and Paul all testifying about this. And this is still true today. Beloved, anyone, even this very day, that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah. If you call sincerely, he will call, he will reach out to you. He will save you, wash your sins away, forgive them, and write your name in the Lamb's book of life. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. He goes on down in verse 24, and he points out how it was impossible for the grave to hold Jesus. And there's a reason for that that is far deeper than I can get into in this short session. But I will direct you. I did cover it in, I did a Names of God series called Run, Kitty, Run. And I talked about the Holy One, and it's, it's in there, and I cover extremely uh, in detail why Peter could say this, that it was not possible for the grave to hold Jesus. So I pray you might look that up on the Facebook um, live videos or some of that, maybe on my YouTube channel. Praise be to God. He speaks about the uh, fulfillment of Psalm 8 through 11. I mean, I'm Psalm 16, 8 through 11, in verse 22 through 36, we find that revealed. Um, we also see in verse 29 through 33, where he talks about how David made these prophetic words, but now David's been dead a long time. So he says, surely he's not talking about himself. He's talking about his Lord. And so he points that out as he goes on down into even verse 34 and 35. So he boldly says, now, therefore, verse, 20, verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus must be to us both Lord and Christ, our Savior. He's not just Messiah, the promised and anointed one, bringing salvation to us. He is also Lord. We become bond slaves. We become doulos to him. We become those who serve him and love him and want to serve him out of a true and grateful heart. Hallelujah. He is Lord and Christ. So in verse 37, the people respond with conviction. Conviction is a good thing. The Bible says here that they were cut to the heart. It's the same thing that David had in 1 Samuel 24, 5, when he had cut the robe off, uh, the corner of Saul's robe off. The Bible says his heart smote him. When the Holy Spirit of God reveals the word of God to someone and brings the revelation of what that word means and the life that is in it to them, then there is conviction because we stand guilty before a holy God. We stand guilty of sin, but when the Holy Spirit has revealed that we can be free of that sin, that there is a Savior, that there is a Lord, 
that can wash our sins away and who he is and what we need to do. We need to respond to that. So the spirit of God convicts them and they say, they cry out, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, he says, I got your answer. This is what you need to do. Repent. Today, that is still the truth of the word of God. Repentance is required. And then he says, believe in Jesus, because he goes on then talking about getting baptized. Baptism is one of those things that can also, people have differences of opinion about and can also be something that creates division. But baptism is a symbolic evidence of what has happened to us inside in our hearts because we've been made brand new. And so in baptism, you go down under the water in, in the sense that you're dead and burying your sins and you come back up, raised to life with newness of life, a new heart, a new spirit. You've been born again. The spirit of God has given you eternal life and you now have become a brand new creation in Jesus Christ. So that's what he's talking about here. He says, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins. Friend, that's what Jesus brings to you is a total release of sin, a total freedom from it, pardon from it, release from its bondage and its imprisonment, release from its penalty. It says in one place, letting them go, letting the sins go as if they were never even committed, being washed and erased away. Praise God. And he tells them here, he says, receive this same Holy Spirit that you see in operation here. This same Holy Spirit that's working here, you can receive it. And then he tells this verse. I want to read this to you because this is very important that we understand it. It says this in verse 39. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. God is still calling people today. This, those who are afar off can also mean a great ways away in terms of distance or in terms of time. And we are 2,000 years removed from this day, approximately, and yet God is still calling people today. This is still for us today. Acts chapter 2 still belongs. And the promise of the Father, that same promise poured out to them, is applicable to us today in the 21st century. Praise God. It's to all of us, and it is still alive today. So, he keeps testifying to them, but I want, to note, I want you to notice... They received the, the word, baptized the church, then grew to a mega church. They had 3,000 people in their church in this time. We're going to see how it continues to grow and expand exponentially. But I want you to notice this because this is powerful in chapter 2. This is foundational pillars for every single church and ministry to operate in. They continued, and we have four here, steadfastly. In the Apostles' Doctrine, which came from the Old Testament, where they took the Old Testament words and made them come alive by connecting them to Jesus, their fulfillment, showing how Jesus was in all of those. And they actually began to write the New Testament. But at this time, the Apostles' Doctrine was all based on the Old Testament and how Jesus has fulfilled it. 
and he began to give them revelation then from that point to write the New Testament. So they continued in the Apostles' Doctrine, which is the whole of the Bible, and in fellowship, community, sharing life together, sharing Jesus together, encouraging one another, helping one another, doing life together. They continued in the breaking of bread, which could signify fellowship meals together, but most probably really signifies communion or the taking of the Lord's table, the sharing of the Lord's table, and in prayers which would include praise and worship as well. So these are the four pillars that every church should be based upon to be a vibrant, true church of the living God. Then in verse 46, he talks about how they had both corporate gatherings and home-to-home gatherings, home groups or smaller fellowships. Then we move into chapter 3, and we see Peter and John now operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we begin to see the outflow of the Holy Spirit because Jesus prophesied in John chapter 7 that this Holy Spirit would be in them, rivers of living water flowing out from them, flowing out from their belly, it says. So now we begin to see that in operation. Peter and John go to the temple at 3 o'clock in the day, in the hour of prayer. They encounter this lame man at the gate, beautiful. And we get the first glimpse of this living water flowing out from them. Because they encounter him, he asks for alms, and Peter looks at him. It says that Peter fixed his eyes on him. And he said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then he took him by the hand. And immediately the man was able to walk, not only to walk, but to leap and dance and praise God. Hallelujah. That shows the extent of his healing. And then he was able to go into the temple with them. No longer was he excluded. No longer was he bound. No longer was he held back. Jesus had set him free. And then in verse 12 through 17, people recognize that. And so they begin to give undue credit to Peter and John. And it's very important for us to understand. Read this chapter because it's very, uh, read this section too, because it's very important that we never, ever take credit for what God does. He gets all the glory. And we see in, we see Peter doing that in verses 13 through 16. He talks about how it's through Jesus that this man was made well. Hallelujah. Beginning in verse 18, he speaks of the fact that that all the prophets spoke about Jesus. He gives them a call to repentance. And he says that the result of repentance will be two things. The blotting out of your sins, meaning erasing them. They are obliterated washed out completely, and then times or seasons of refreshing revival. It's a fresh breath. It's like a fresh, a breath of fresh air can come and refresh us and revive us. Praise be to God. He speaks in verse 20 through 21, and we're almost done here with this chapter, about the reason for Jesus' ascension. 
It says that he, heaven had to receive him in verse 21 until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So in other words, there's coming a time of the restoration of all things and it will be at that time when Jesus will return and we are still waiting for that time to come. But it was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets and it's going to be when Jesus restores everything like it was at the beginning. Jeremiah 33, 7 mentions that. And this is going to be like it was when God originally created it to have sweet fellowship with people like it was in Genesis 1 and 2. Revelation in 21 and 22 and Genesis 1 and 2 form the bookends of the Bible. And God is all about restoring all things. Praise be to God. He also talks in this chapter about how it will be for all the earth, Jew and Gentile. Praise God. And I want to finally just point one more thing out, that one of the greatest blessings of God and most precious blessings of God, a good, good father, is to turn us from our iniquities, turn us away from those things, those things that are deeply entrenched sins and patterns, lifestyles of sin and wickedness that we've been bound to before. One of the greatest blessings of all is that he will turn us from those and free us from those. I pray that this has been a blessing to you today. And Lord willing, that you can join me again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you in Jesus' name.